Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sustained. We talked a little bit last time around about a desire to respond to what's going on and to make some content, do some research that helps both ourselves and hopefully you all engage some of this to the best of our ability. Before we jump in, we wanted to focus more on some of the history and systemic issues that we found as opposed to sort of telling other people's lived experiences in this issue. We're going to have a lot of links to stories and Black voices talking about these issues. But our focus is going to be, and something we found to be very relevant in this discussion, that's often left out in discussions of race, is issues of agriculture, production, how they tie into food sovereignty, and the very active history of the American government excluding Black farmers from being landowners, engaging in agricultural practice, and generally creating this idea that many people are familiar of the sort of agricultural American heartland comprised of the conservative white farmer has become a big symbol. And that was no accident. So Tom and I have gone off, done a lot of research. This is a lot of new territory for both of us. So we're trying to share with you all what we've learned, what we found, and would love to sort of invite you all to listen along. Let us know what you think. Um, and once again, do make sure to check the notes, find some of the voices. There's some really powerful interviews and tales told by people who have lived this experience. So make sure to check those out. Just to highlight a point that you made there, Lucas, uh, we're speaking from our own experiences here and we are looking to bring to light some of the research that we found. And this is very much so an active learning process. We are by no means experts in this field, but we find that we still can bring forth some of this information and highlight some of these sources and have a conversation around it. Uh, you know, we're at the very beginning point in this research, but we have enough right now to set up a ongoing narrative that we hope to look at further in, in future episodes and have it be an ongoing thing because, you know, this is, this has gone on the, the particularly the, the issues of land theft, really the, the plight of, of black farmers uh, in America has been something that happened since the day in which they were brought to the shores of the U.S. and enslaved. And in various ways, this is this form of suppression um, and theft of land and power and resources has continued on to this day. I mean, you look to the, just the 20th century alone and black farmers have lost 12 million acres of land. Of the 3.4 million farmers in the U.S., around 45,000 are black which is approximately 1.3%. And if you really look at the fine details, you'll see that black farmers own less than a half of a percentage of the nation's farmland. And in no way is that an accident. So today we really just want to want to take a deep dive into some of the reasons as to how this unfolded and to begin charting a path forward, uh, one that focuses on reparations and liberation and bringing democracy back into the food system. Before we go any further, I just want to add a quick content warning. This episode will be discussing themes of race, violence, and oppression. Additionally, we spend a lot of time this episode talking about various systems that enforce racist policies and discriminatory practices, and just needs to be stated as a reminder that the underlying power structure that supports these systems is the monopolized state violence that we see being protested 
with all that in mind, here's the show. Coming out of World War One, we see the founding of the Farmers Bureau or the American Farmers Bureau, which was largely in response to movements of labor and group action in farming communities and functioned and now calls itself the voice of farmers or the voice of agriculture in America, which is a registered trademark for its own like marketing. And it's an insurance company that has functioned to be lobbying and represents largely only like land owning farm interests. Most of its members aren't actually farmers. So this com- this organization started 1919 after the First World War has influenced this entire history of farming and agriculture and protections in the U.S. And one of the most important things that it talked about and at the beginning of its message was about farmers being responsible for farmers and getting the government out of farm policy and agricultural policy. So we've heard this type of discussion about where the federal government or where state governments belong in business before. But that language always has undercurrents about independence and protections of how systems are done that often are far more complicated than they would seem. And in this case, resulted in a very complicated relationship between farming, banks, and the government, where this insurance company took a very large role in the center of it. And that is the fact that in the system we have today, farming without investment or debt is almost impossible. It is a high-risk practice that relies on good weather conditions and many externalities to function well. Relies that the people before you dealt with the land well, just like in practices that allow it to still be good farming land. It relies on financial support. It relies on good weather. All of these things. It's incredibly complicated. And immediately we have a setup of insurance that comes into play. The government sort of being pushed out to some degree, but also being used in terms of subsidy programs. And ultimately, I'm not, it's not worth our time to get into like all the little details, but it makes a very complicated relationship that relies on going through both private companies like the American Farm Bureau and federal bank systems and private banks also as well to have what you need to do a farm. So keeping that in mind, talking about land ownership and sovereignty is the next sort of like step. And on that point, we've known this to be true since the beginning of our country is that land is synonymous with power. So we see that there's this multiplier effect where oftentimes land is a very clear pathway towards liberation. And if you think about it, in the wake of the Emancipation Proclamation, there was this large base of farmers. Well, when I say farmers, I mean previously enslaved individuals that were working on plantations, working intimately with the land, developing this wide knowledge base. They were the ones that knew the land better than the plantation owners, better than the oppressors. And they, having now their independence, were a threat to these plantation owners, to these, these oppressors, because they now had their independence. They now had their knowledge. And the last pillar to their independence was through land and land ownership and being able to live out your land 
independently, being able to grow food in a community, serving and looking after your individuals, that was a major blow to the power structure that had been and would continue to be. That is where we begin to see this more insidious, veiled version of suppression come out in terms of how the federal government moves into farming and how those within the federal government began to selectively loan to white farmers over their black counterparts. And over time, we see that land is actively taken away from black farmers and people of color in general because they were not able to secure the credit. Like Lucas said, the debt farming requires debt. It requires massive amounts of investments for inputs such as fertilizers, for seeds, for, for things like insurance. And if you don't get those, if you don't get it in time, then your whole whole operation is thrown off and your livelihood is at stake. The stakes are not small. The stakes are incredibly high. Um, and it comes down to something as fundamental as food and food access. And um, the fact that so much of this country is devoted to food production. And it's such a staple part of how, like, how things work the way they need to work. So there's this undercurrent in all of these discussions that such a staple element of the country is based off of a wildly disproportionate sort of disproportionate representation of the actual makeup of the country and something that we've seen again and again and again. And one other thing that has to be brought up in this is a distinction as we talk about farmers. We've already begun to make it, but something that has to be made explicitly clear is that there's farmers and farm workers and as there's like farmers farm workers and then landowning farmers and that is something that we have to be very clear is treated two entirely separate ways when we're talking about farming and business and particularly discrimination because as we know a lot of ways as tom was talking about after the end of slavery attempts were made drastically to just maintain the status quo as close to possible and land ownership was the secret to do that in terms of people who were trying to keep control, which is something that often gets broken up in people's imagination of the sort of agricultural system in the U S because everyone's been so enamored by this concept of like the rugged individualist farmer who goes out on their own and gets up at 2 AM in the morning or whatever to, and it's like a lot of some of that bears weight. It's we've heard from a farmer last episode about what, farming life looks like, but also it's not this thing that's untouched by the rest of how the world works. It's just as much part of the system and part of these movements of seeking social justice and change. And it has to be included in that because I feel like it's often put on this island that the ideology surrounding farming has often supported, which is that it's this like way out there, rugged, totally solo, not so involved in all these other movements when I'd say it's a pretty excellent example of how a very contrived system between these different donation systems and in, in, in like um, the insurance systems that make monoculture farming possible, all of that being present makes this a very complicated system. That's actually a good example of a number of the issues that people are discussing in other sectors. So I feel like there's a big argument for including this elements into other forms of activism and change and discussions that are happening 
And once again, we found a lot of people talking about that element of this, including Amber Tam, who's working on farm ownership and urban farming initiatives. So there's a lot of good stuff on that, but it has to be, I think it has to be included more in conversations. It's been often sort of like put out there as just this individual rural existence that gets totally separated from other conversations about federal yeah, action. And, and we've seen attempts at working outside of the system. You know, you look at guerrilla style farming as a way of getting around the divestment and denial of BIPOC farmers through through federal rural channels in, in urban settings. But it, it's like, how, how can that scale? How can, how can that truly come to fruition? I mean, like hard work and, and grit can get you incredibly far. But, you know, when looking at how to have a financially viable, um, socially just and an environmentally sustainable farm, like there are massive, massive upfront costs that come with that. And, and it, 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 it's like, yes, of course you need outside financing and yes, you need land ownership, but where do you even begin when you have a system that overtly denies loans, denies disaster payments, and whatever other funding that is necessary, where do you go when you lack the generational wealth that comes with land? And where do you go when you don't have those loans? It's like, how can, how far can you get with just grounding like bits and pieces of land and, and, you know, volunteers? And it's just like, it really just exposes how reliant our farming system and government have become. And when you have a system that so blatantly favors white folks over people of color, like where do you go from there? And I, I, I feel like we really see this come to a head when we're going into the 1980s farming crisis. We see farms incredibly challenging financial situations as commodity crop prices just fall after a golden age. And you see the need for credit more than ever. And this is where the really ugly lending practices come to light when we see farmers long denied credit come forward as a collective in the Pigford first Glickman discrimination suit. But before we dive into that, I think it would be really interesting to root this in a story um, written by Van R. Newkirk in The Atlantic. This piece is quite powerful and really gets at the rise of the, the Pigford versus Glickman case. And it centers its story around this man named Ed Scott Sr., who originally grew up in Alabama. And in, during that time in the early 1900s in Alabama, black people could only share crop. Uh, so we see him move to the Mississippi Delta and Newkirk really makes a argument that you really can't separate the Pigford versus Glickman case from the Mississippi Delta. The Mississippi Delta was kind of this oasis, some of the most fertile land in the U.S. And Ed Scott Sr. flocked there and he worked on a large farming operation and the 
white owner was actually quite sympathetic and was willing to actually sell off some of his land to Ed Scott Sr. And over time, Scott Sr. is able to amass land. By the time he's in his later years, he has near a thousand acres. And his son, Ed Scott Jr., goes off to serve in World War II, um, comes back after working uh, in a transportation unit. And he sees as though he's denied many of the opportunities granted by the GI Bill that his, his white counterparts received. And he turns to farm to, to carry on the legacy of his father, as so many children of farmers do. And, you know, in this time, the federal government, like you mentioned, Lucas, has become the primary lender. And the great grandchildren of many of these plantation owners had now had great control over lending. And in this time, as Ed Scott Jr. takes on the practice of farming uh, on his father, Scott Sr.'s behalf, he is in the middle of the farming crisis and he simply cannot get funding. So in this really wild change of events, he pivots to catfish farming where he goes on to dig these catfish ponds and it's a tremendous success, but it's not nearly enough or adequate compared to what he would have been able to do if he had not experienced the USDA's practice of half lending, which thwarted the success of him and, and other black farmers. He did not get sufficient loans, forcing him to sell off his land. And from the 1,000 acres of land that his father amassed, he's left with about 300. And he's faced with foreclosure. And that's not a unique story by any means. And the Scott family become pivotal to the Pigford versus Glickman case. It's not uncommon that financial reasons edged people out of farming, particularly in context of following up on land that they had already in the family. A lot of People focus on simply barriers to new land acquisition, but the constant financial pressure in these situations and uh, higher difficulty to get good insurance plans on crops um, for people of color resulted in a lot of land being lost in processes that was also compounded by increased rates of mechanization and automation that have sort of shifted the setting to a lot like to a very broad range of people, which keeping in mind the scale, then a class action suit like began to arise in the setting of Pigford and Glickman becomes like a clear next step as one way to include a larger group of people in. But as you're going to hear in a second, not everyone who was included on paper was really included in a meaningful way. Yeah. So you see this class action discrimination suit between the USDA and black farmers go forward. And it's asserted that the USDA had discriminated against black farmers on the basis of race, and they simply failed to address complaints from the time span of 1983, again, in the wake of the great farming crisis of the 1980s through 1997. They specifically cite that farmers were denied USDA loans or forced to wait uh, longer on the approval process compared to their white counterparts. 
And because of this, many farmers were either on the brink of financial ruin due to the USDA dragging their feet when it came to loan and debt restructuring, or they were pushed into that financial ruin and had lost the wealth that they had built in the land and through their crops. So as the case plays out, we see that the USDA goes on to commission a study that is conducted by a private organization, and it looks into the Farm Service Agency, particularly in the time frame of 1990 to 1995. And they were looking at the, the lending practices, the recipients of the loans, the breakdowns of the, the payments and things of the like. The study concluded that minority participation as a whole was very low and that they did not receive nearly as much in loans, disaster payments or crop payments. And what is perhaps most startling is that this study concluded that the reasons for the discrepancies in treatment between the black and white farmers could not easily be determined due to gross deficiencies in the USDA's data collecting and handling. What that says is that the USDA internally was just so disorganized that there was just no way of even looking at the data side by side because it just wasn't even factored in. It was just missing. So the attorneys uh, that were representing the, the black farmers requested blanket mediation, but the Department of Justice essentially opposed this and wanted cases to be argued individually. So they set a date in court for this class action lawsuit to proceed. And as the court date approached, they reached a settlement agreement and consolidated the Pigford case. And as of April 14th, 1999, the court approves the consent decree that they came up with. And they begin the initial disbursement of checks. So the, the discrimination is clear. It's clear that, you know, Particularly in the, the span of 1983 to 1997, black farmers were denied credit and that the USDA was acting in a way that was clearly discriminatory. So that they began this initial disbursement of checks to farmers that were affected beginning in November of 1999. But what's really interesting here is that they had two tracks for a claim. Track A would provide a settlement of $50,000 and loan forgiveness, possibly with an offset of tax liability. And they required farmers, claimants, to provide substantial evidence uh, of discrimination. And as Lucas noted, the paper trails weren't always there. In the case of the Scott family, they had binders and binders of receipts and they just documented so meticulously. So they had the evidence, but for many farmers, that was not the case. And for the second track, track B, these were tailored payments for greater damage, but they had to prove the claims and they had to have a preponderance of evidence, which is essentially saying that it's more likely than not that their claims are valid. And many farmers did not have their cases heard due to late filings, which we eventually see playing out into Pigford the second, the second evolution, because once this case broke 
And the news became clear that farmers were getting paid because of this discriminatory practice. Many more came, but it was often after the window was allotted for payments. And and it really makes you wonder, like, it had to be in the way in which this was was aired and 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 made known like it, the, the the thousands of farmers that came for, forth afterwards like it couldn't have just been an accident here like it it seems like it was so intentionally crafted that it was only sent out to a limited pool of farmers and that's just that's just so on brand ah and this is an excellent example of a number of factors coming together and it hits this history in a way that's completely undeniable. And it's the U.S. is very good at land theft. It's something that uh, we've been doing for a long time. The government has learned a lot of different ways to do it. And one of the ways that is so commonly apparent, which is what Tom's been talking about, is this erasure, this f- focus on specific forms of documentation and evidence taking as 90% of how they'll like decide a case like this. Their practice of documentation that's such a focus, that's so evidenced in this case, that is the type of documentation that's been gotten rid of and erased in a lot of understanding of the past and an engagement with these communities of Black farmers that's been ignored. And now it's one of the largest pieces of advice that is shared to new farmers and new business owners is keep constant and painstaking track of every single thing that happens because these cases, because the government, the USDA and the American Farm Bureau tend to not include whatever information they may or may not have in cases they don't offer this evidence. So there's this, I think that Tom gave a little bit of a, <laughs> gave a, bit of a kind reading um, on them being disorganized. I'd say it might have been <laughs> a little more active than that, but it's, that's impossible to prove. So it's, there's this element to it, which is that this is, this is a really, it's a case that is still used as precedent because they established discriminatory practices. But it's also a very frustrating case because in a literal case that established discriminatory practices and stated that that was the federal government was doing, a pittance was given to some of the farmers. And that was sort of, at the time, considered, okay, we face this. And it's also important to fold this into a larger theme that we can see in plenty of data, plenty of graphs, whatever. You can find it all over the place. But it's just the fact that farmland in the U.S. has stayed pretty consistent since the beginning of the 20th century. But the number of farms has dropped drastically since about 1950 until now, with the size of farms growing exponentially. So it's just the consolidation of land under a select few owners. So to tie into this process of land theft and exclusion, the people picking it up were almost the like the borderline monopolistic farming entities that we started to talk about in our first episode about how these industries worked. So these issues that Pigford and Glickman showcases just be became so rapidly present across so much of the country with the consolidation of farmland that all of these problems were just wild, like much further extenuated because there was way less available farmland for small scale growers overall. And then on top of that, you see this systemic discrimination. So 
the amount of available land is already cut way down. And now it's made even harder to get. So like the situation yeah, is pretty to, dire. To that point, we see that in 2010, Obama signed in the farm bill authorizing $1.25 billion to address and compensate the late claims. And yes, this is monumental. Long overdue. Yes. A step in the right direction. Sure. But you ask yourself, was justice truly served in this case? $50,000 in loan forgiveness. Like with that, you can go and buy a tractor. But how do you even begin to compensate for the opportunity costs for the generational wealth that might be upwards of a half a million dollars? probably more. I mean, how do you begin to grapple with that and and reconcile and 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 work with that? Like how does how does it how does this case fully account for the absolute inhibition of generational wealth building? It doesn't. And so it really leaves us with this obligation to pick up where Pigford and Glickman left off. And I think that plays out in the form of reparations. I read this incredibly powerful excerpt from Farming While Black, and it states that if African Americans were paid $20 per week for their agricultural labor, rather than being enslaved, they would have $6.4 trillion in today's dollars in the bank right now. This figure does not include reparations for denied credit and home ownership opportunities, exclusion from the social safety net and education, or property theft and destruction. There is a reason why the typical white household has 16 times the wealth of a typical black household. 80% of wealth is inherited, often traceable back to slavery times. Existing policies reinforce and augment the wealth gap. And that sets a very, very interesting stage for how we proceed. For black individuals and and people of color, that their ancestors were kneecapped by USDA and federal loan operating agencies. And you see them and the wealth that was denied of them. You know, it really sets an interesting, sets an interesting path forward for how we begin to bring about justice. And this is a moment where it's really important to acknowledge a lot of different elements in this, from the individual actors to also the systemic issues that a lot of that's often hard to accept just by the scale of it. And it's, I think, land is one of the best examples of land ownership and land theft and continued profiting off of land that was taken. And that entire process is like the easiest way to see the continued, one of the easiest ways to see the sort of the continued trend of why it's, how it's still a problem and how history is still like very present. But there's also a lot of rhetorical stuff that I think is important in discussing these themes of this process, this history of, land theft and food sovereignty is 
well demonstrated in groups like the Farm Bureau, who call themselves the Unified National Voice of Agriculture, or the ideas of rural-urban divides um, as a large point, like, oh, people have this imaginary idea of the whatever the rural conservative person who does this or that, but there's also massive populations of non-white people all over the South who have incredibly discriminatory po- like policies aimed towards them that a lot of it relies on these systems of land disenfranchisement and not having access to the, the like language and relief aimed for those who are identified at, in this as like land owning farmers. That being said, this should be a remark also against the fact that so much of the land is owned by just a few of these big ag companies that now like subcontract. That's another massive issue that's making this worse. Um, so it's sort of including most of that in this discussion is one of, is the only way to sort of understand or to sort of come to terms with how severe this issue is. And on top of that as well is we're seeing stagnation of wages and increased increasingly bad work situations for people who work on this land owned by other people. So when you have larger conglomerates working under like highly incentivized and tight profit margins to run these um, large farm systems that rely on having low wage workers who don't own the land and can't set the conditions, we or like we, the result we see and what we're seeing is the worst working conditions with the lowest wages combined with yeah. the most and, health and problems. I think it, it's a really interesting juxtaposition when we see that for many farm workers that are here on H-2A visas or that are here um, with an undocumented status, we see them occupying these cramped living spaces often nearby and they live in housing accommodations owned by the same person that owns the farming operation. And they are often crammed in these spaces. There's often bunk beds set up and we see very poor living conditions like you speak of. And you see this fear of retaliation under the circumstances that these these farmers are often here. Farm workers are here often undocumented. And how is this all that different from when there were there were plantations? It's an incredibly sad parallel that we see. But it's how it is. It, It shows that there is this this continuation of this power structure that suppresses the workers, amasses the land and power in the wealthy landholders. And we see the prioritization of cash crops and the production of them. And it's always, always at the expense of the farm workers. Just making that analogy perfectly clear, they are currently looking to prison labor to help fill gaps in farm labor. So they're 
bring people in already predominantly people of color who don't get paid for their labor. Or maybe they get paid at like a few cents an hour. And we see that's just like the perfect exploitation of land. the 13th Amendment, which allows so th- <laughs> for enslaved labor under the circumstances of punishment. Yeah, it's it's flagrant as fuck. <laughs> Honestly, it's this. I'm pretty happy this conversation sort of turning into this because ultimately, like, we don't have the narrative to say we don't have the like the knowledge to point out. Like, I don't think I could give you a perfectly coherent narrative that puts together all the pieces they build into each other. But I also don't think I need to because it's not actually a hard argument to make. It's not a hard thing to point out. Uh, how prevalent this issue is. And it's like every element. And one of the most frustrating things that you see a lot is people talking about everything from options in the grocery store to what you eat is influenced by the fact that a handful of people own almost all the farmland. Or not almost all the farmland, but a ton of the farmland. And if you're in that setting, options aren't on the table healthy food is on the table. It's only these like specific monoculture things that are backed by government loans and government aid and government subsidies. So the agricultural, like governmental agricultural, like relationship has entirely excluded people of color and doesn't really have any interests of general people in mind beyond that. So there's just, this in, like this inclusion is an essential part in sort of pushing back against many of the issues in the food system. And one of the most important ways to push back against that and build a food system that actually works for the future in terms of sustainability, farm ownership, and representation and profit share is to give land back in the form of reparations. It's essential for food system to move forward and i think to move forward in a way that is overall good it's so important that it's not the usda it's not any it's not the farm bureau association it's not any of these predominantly white long-standing organizations that are dictating and defining what reparations look like because as we know the system that currently is in place to look out for farmers, whatever that means in their, their mission statements and vision statements. It's not geared towards addressing the land theft and the the lack of ownership that black farmers face and, and other people of color face. And it's so, so incredibly important that a new system is created in which these traditionally marginalized groups are able to say what reparations need to look like for in order for them to prosper. And looking, looking back towards the new deal, it's clear how sweeping economic change that tries to confront these issues will largely due to the system of states and federal government interaction that we've seen functioning so wonderfully under this pandemic uh, managed to just break down any sort of attempt at broad change by local actors shifting standards, which is what we saw with perpetuation of lending practices and financial assistance after the Great Depression, the New Deal was supposed to help with was that many people who had been hit the hardest didn't receive the aid 
because of how this legislature was written and applied. So a hugely important note to keep in mind when people when were sort of looking to try and engage with this issue is that these efforts almost always get twisted because they don't, in my opinion, they don't usually so go further that far enough. Us, I think um, that leads us to this important process of reimagining what yeah. justice looks like moving forward. I think it, it, it involves a, a plethora of things, whether it's giving land, money, and jobs away. I think it, it's a matter of doing what is, what is very difficult, and that's personal sacrifice. And I don't know how that will play out in our current economic system where property rights are essential. And it's just like, what does that, what does that mean? How can we, how can we get people on board with the idea of reparations? Because it is what black farmers are owed, but it's just, it's, it's where, where do we begin with that? And on top of that, this is such a circular sort of self-compounding thing, which is that profit margins on this type of food production, the large scale stuff that we're seeing is in the effort to keep it as cheaply as possible so that it can be affordable for workers with stagnating wages. And so like the food emergency system in this country has been co-opted by companies like Walmart, for example, who pay their employees an incredibly low fee in many uh, low um, wage in many places under the assumption that they will be getting assistance from the government to pay for that food. So why do we have such a reactionary food system? Why don't we have a food system that sort of tries to look ahead and in this instance, shift how the like food producing land is distributed so that people can more effectively sort of cater to like communities and actually produce food in a way that's far more sustainable. And I think it's it's largely that this system hasn't reckoned like it hasn't reckoned with its past. So at this point, there's not in my I there's not a lot of like reconciliation of the food system, or there's not a lot of I guess like um, just slight tweaks to be made in policy. It has to be a pretty fundamental reimagining of it. And I, maybe there's not a better time to do that than when a virus shut down a ton of it. But it's been incredibly clear that there's a lot more here to reconcile with than just a virus issue. And it's, there's been a lot of people talking about police brutality and things with saying that they also like that they're, they're not, they're not just terrible to black people, they're also terrible to white people. And then that's somehow fuel for their racist response to a movement. In this instance, the way the agricultural system has been, has been incredibly horrifically oppressive to black farmers and has ripped the land away from them once it ostensibly emancipated them. And there's no way to solve any of these issues and how they've been passed down generationally with giving a little bit of land back or just a little bit of money back or even just these sort of like class action suits. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's as a far as I can tell with opportunity <laughs> uh, for change. I think it's a matter of centralizing the voices of 
BIPOC farmers and having them have full, full right to the stage and voicing what needs to happen right now in this moment to bring back democracy, to bring back, well, not even bring back maybe just to introduce democracy and, and justice to the farming system and the greater food system, because you and I both know it hasn't always been there. And sometimes it's been entirely absent. Yeah. I think that's one of the most important things to take away from food production history in this country is that it was rooted in slavery. And from there, a lot of it with just the smallest concessions possible at each step by the people, by many of the people doing the producing, it has been the smallest concessions possible fought for tooth and nail by the people in those conditions or supporting the people in those conditions. And it's shocking that people have this imagined idea of the amount of progress that's been made for something that's like so fundamental to a country or a community or anybody just surviving. And it's one of the incredibly difficult elements of engaging with the food system is that the power that should belong to the workers and had been has been exercised by farm workers in the past to just cut off food supply to the people consuming the product and ultimately to reduce profits has been basically entirely taken by lobbying groups like the American Farm Bureau to be turned into their political capital. Because the American Farm Bureau and other farming lobbyist groups have insane amounts of power when it comes to policymaking. And it will not surprise you that most of the American Farm Bureau members aren't even farmers. And they're definitely not reflective yeah. I mean, of um, what I'm left the Democrats. Right now is would say that, that justice here looks like the redistribution of land and putting land in the hands of those who have been denied of it for far too long. That's our show for this week. Um, ultimately, I found that we were left with a pretty sobering fact that our food system is not broken. It's working as it was designed to, based off of land theft and slavery from the very beginning. It has not faced the change that has to occur, as has become abundantly apparent. Moving forward, we're going to try and include more themes of this in the research we do and the stories we cover. Additionally, both Tom and I are working outside of this in other ways to help, particularly in the food world, but beyond that as well. We're going to include a lot of links for you all from those trying to speak to this, those working actively, whether it be in the format of community farms or larger movements. It all counts, and please do what you can to help. See you next time.